You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We're going to be in Matthew 5 today, or in the Beatitudes, as we were last year. I just want to start, I just, sometimes I just forget to just be so uh, thankful for our worship team here, who just continuously points us to worship about our God, to our God, and, and not just about the things that he might give us. So I'm just so thankful for them, and just want to tell Caleb and the crew, just, they just do a fantastic job. Well, welcome to Life Community Church. We are glad that you're here. Uh, it's not going to be a surprise to you that I'm going to tell you that we are a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ, and we strive to live out that identity through four different values as best as we can, to practice love with everyone always, to give more than what makes sense, to chase after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives, and ultimately to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's word. That's who we are. That's what we want to be. Uh, a few things just to pass on to you guys today. First is this, if you're here and you, you don't readily get information on what we're doing, we've got a texting service that you can just text the 411, that's kind of a cool thing, to our church phone number, 824-2252, and you just get updates on things that are happening here. We, we've gotten better with how we send out those messages and the frequency that we send out those messages, so uh, it will be a good thing for you to be in the know there. The second thing is that we do have a mission trip that's coming up to the Atlanta Dream Center that focuses on human trafficking, and there is still room for you guys to go on that trip if that's something that you feel like the Lord may be calling you to take a step like that. Uh, if you're interested, you can talk to Lindsay and Dan Dunnick uh, about the possibility of going. And then last Last week, we just want to keep this in front of us, as always, that, that we have a, a prayer wall, uh, lifecommunityprayer.net. You can go there. Just enter the things that are going on in your world. We'd love to be able to, to bring to you ways that you can pray for people in your congregation, ways that we know what's going on in your life. So please utilize that in and, and using it and frequenting it uh, as somebody who attends here to, to see how we can pray for our people. All right, so let's head into Matthew 5, the Beatitudes today, and we'll start in verse 1, and we'll go all the way to verse 12. It'll be on the screen. You can also read it in your Bibles. Seeing the crowds, this is Jesus, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just pray. 
Father, every atom of our body, every moment of our lives, every particle in creation is yours. And you are equally present in our failures, in our successes, in our departures, in arrivals, our fellowships, in our loneliness, our youth, in our old age, our passions, our vocations, Lord, in our chores, and in our entertainment. You are near us in our sleep. You're with us in our tears, in our laughters, in our birth, and even in the hours of our death. And so, Father, we gather here today to remember you and that you are nearer than we can imagine and that you are better than what we could hope for. And so, Lord, will you let your spirit speak truth into our life? Will you allow us to be humble, to hear your word, that you may stir us in profound ways? And we pray this boldly through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So you kiddos in here, there is this uh, interesting thing that happens in our journey in life. As we get brought up, your whole life has been so far being taught by your parents and your grandparents and people around you how to do things, how to tie your shoes, um, how to wipe yourself. That's going on in the house right now, right? Your whole life, you're bent on learning how to do things so you can become independent and not depend on other people. But what I think is strikingly different and strikingly odd as being a follower of Christ is what you will find is that as a Christian, you have to unlearn. You have to unlearn your independence to learn the joy of being dependent on a God. And so that's what we want to walk through today is understanding the faulty wisdom of independency and the beauty of dependency of God. And so I'm going to give you five words. Those are big words. Five words, poor, lifted, kingdom. And this is going to be an interesting word, sojourner. Sojourner is like somebody who is traveling through another country to get to their true home. And the last one is dependent. So those are what we're going to walk in today. You know, happiness is something that the world would not necessarily associate with those who follow Christ. Uh, In fact, they probably think we're weird. In fact, I know that they think they're weird. I know that I've been called weird. Um, And even I would say that some would say that Christians are a miserable, angry people. And I think if we're honest... There's probably truth in that critique at times, isn't there? And so as we turn to the gospel of Jesus here in Matthew, we see Christ calling us to be happy. He uses the word blessed, which is this Greek word makarios, which translates nearer happy, fortunate people than it does our worldly construct of what it means to be blessed in this world. Happy, fortunate are those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek, those who mourn. You know, last week we talked about that term blessed. And we arrived at the understanding that blessed as a follower of Jesus has nothing to do with our positions, our possessions, our materials, our power. To be blessed is to be one who knows God and to be known by God to know his presence. In fact, that's exactly what King David writes in Psalm 144. King David says, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. 
Blessed are the people who, whose God is the Lord. And it seems, though, that over the course of our lives, uh, we are, have been tried uh, to be convinced that greater happiness is found through greater independence. And certainly we value our independence and freedom in this culture. We want the freedom to choose our own pathways, our own determinations. We believe that we will be happier if I am truer to myself, if I'm truer to my desires, and if I have the things that I really want. But when we look at the Beatitudes, we find something distinctly different. Distinctly different. The Beatitudes that talk about happy, blessed, fortunate replaces this idea of independency with dependency, the posture of dependency. And it says that the, the happiness isn't in the fabric of myself. It's not within the contents of my own knowledge. It is actually something that's alien to me, something that is on the outside external. And that sort of can be an offensive idea if we think about it for a little bit. Uh, To think that inside of myself, there isn't the capacity to create my own happiness. And maybe we scoff at the idea of blessed happiness coming through greater dependency on God. And that objection may be intelligently honest, intellectually honest. You may believe that the problem is, is that the whole story of your life compels something entirely different. The the pattern of our lives, the pattern of our living, is in finding that which is external to improve the internal. We are consistently looking for the next thing that will spark something in us to make us feel good. And we do that all sorts of ways. We do that by buying things, just the joy of having that box come to our house, or seeing that deal that I really don't need. Right? But it's a too good of a deal to pass up. I'll get that. We do it by watching TV and just our shows and just feeling calm and comforted by that. Uh, we, we do it in selling things. Just I'm going to make some money here. Just the high off of doing that. We do it through relationships. We think, well, that boy, if I just had a boyfriend, if I just had a girlfriend, if I had a wife, spouse, if I just had deep friendships, then oh, that's when I would be happy. Or even social media. like The number of friends that I have the number of likes that I get on something, even just my ability to speak my mind. That just externally creates something happy in me, something that brings me joy. Food, just at at the end of the day, like cookies and cream sounds really good, right? And then our sleep, like just things that didn't go our way. And and what we can say is, I just want to get to bed, right? I just need to go to, to sleep here. There's always something external that is needed to soothe us or create an internal feeling. It's as if we're looking for an ointment or a salve for our own restless spirit. And so as much as we like to think that we're independent, the truth is is that we're not. We are not independent. And so as we sit here as the church, I think it's important to remind ourselves of what part of the message of Christ is all about. It isn't that we've actually found something externally that is infinitely better than all of those things that I just talked about. That it's not just infinitely better than all of those things like my food and my sleep that we try to find externally 
to deal with a fracture of my own soul that is without joy and peace? Like the core of the Christian message isn't just about the seismic love and grace that God has for his creation. It is in that those in Christ have first come to know the joy and the grace in accepting their innate weakness and their utter brokenness, just as it is. The joy of coming and saying, I can't. I don't know. You could say it this way. Christ followers are those who have come to the end of themselves, the end of their pride, and they have accepted their utter inability to, through their independency, maintain their dependency on broken solutions. We have just said enough is enough. And we realize that there is no object. There's no object out there that's going to make me find happiness. The true problem is here. And that is the core of what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And that's the beatitude that we want to look at today in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, if you see the kingdom of heaven, know that those terms kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, interchangeable. They mean the same thing. And at first glance, when you hear that, right, when you hear blessed are the poor in spirit, that doesn't sound appetizing. It just sounds like a giant bowl of depression, right? Let's just be honest. It's like somebody comes to us and says, do you want some razors in your Fruit Loops? And you're like, sure, I'll have some of that. It doesn't sound inviting, but being poor in spirit is precisely the characteristic of happy, fortunate people. Not only is it the characteristic of happy, fortunate people, it is also the gate in which we enter into the happy, fortunate kingdom. You know, there's an interesting wordplay in our Beatitudes uh, that I just ask you to look over this week. Uh, an in, an in, uh, wordplay that I think that we should note. Like when we look at the Beatitudes, there are these promises that are attached to all these different postures. Blessed are those who are meek and mourn, peacemakers. There's promises like, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's all these sort of promises. And what I want you to look at is the tense in those verses. Not the anxiety like tense, but the present, past, future tense of those verses. And here's what we'll find is only the first and the last one in the Beatitudes are written in the present tense. Every other posture, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Every other one is future tense. The last and the first one, we find present descriptors of somebody living in the kingdom of God now. And so what we hear Jesus say, or what we should hear Jesus say, is that poverty of spirit is the gateway to present kingdom living. And more so, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom living, kingdom living is the only way to be truly happy and blessed in this life. And I think that's mind-blowing. Like, you cannot live in the kingdom of God if you are not first poor in spirit. And you cannot be truly blessed and happy outside of that kingdom. And so Jesus is just making some richly powerful statements that happy, fortunate people are those who live in the kingdom of God and those who live in the kingdom of God must first find themselves poor. 
I think this is important for us to understand what Jesus truly means when he says poverty in spirit, poor in spirit. I said to you earlier that, that poor in spirit means that somebody has come to the end of themselves, who has found the joy of accepting their own innate weakness and brokenness, one who has seen their folly and their inability, who sees themselves poor and bankrupt in front of God. But maybe it'll make sense to you if I speak to it like this. Suppose you live in the land of a good king. And as far as you could see, everything is his. He owns all the houses and all the villages and all the hills and all the livestock and all the fields and all the crops. Everything is his. And all the people in that land serve him. They serve him. And they are blessed by his kingship. He is a good king. And he is generous, protective, wise, and just. And although he doesn't have to, nor is he required to, he lives with his people. He knows his people. He dwells with his people. Now suppose someday that king gave you an invite to come to the castle. Just you. And he invited you to lunch. And you are just overwhelmed. The good king has invited me to lunch. And you start thinking in your little house that he owns. Well, what am I going to do? What, what should I do? I should bring him something. I should give a gift to the king. What, can I, what kind of gift could I give them? And then you think, oh, I know what would be cool. I'll give him an Instapot. Right? Because who doesn't like to cook food with hot pressure? certainly the king won't have that sitting on his countertop for months on end without using it. And then you realize, oh, he owns the factory. I'm sure he has seven. And in that, you make an admission. There's nothing that I could give the king that he doesn't already have. And then you start thinking, well, what are we going to speak about when we're there? Like, is this going to be the king? I don't know what I'm going to say. What should I say? Okay, I'll talk about my cattle, talk about my livestock, and then you realize, oh, he owns them. And in fact, he was just here Tuesday, and we talked about it. And then you come to the admission, there's nothing that I know the king doesn't already know. And then you're just frantic for hours, just thinking about, what am I going to do? And the hour draws near. <laughs> It draws near for you to go to see the king. And you just come to this humble decision to come to the good king as one who owns nothing, that has nothing to give, nothing to say, but with simple delight in the goodness of a king that wants me to be near. Poverty in spirit is the one who recognizes in light of God's goodness and grace the infinite joy that comes from confessing my weakness and seeing my utter inability. Nothing to give, nothing to bring, nothing to own, just the grace to know what I am not next to the sea of the goodness, love, and power that is Christ, who is a king that has only asked me to come. To come, to be low, to be lifted. Now, there were some that will hear that and think, 
Or are you saying that the Lord is calling us into some version of self-hatred? Like to loathe my knowledge and my abilities and my gifts and my efforts and my desire. And there is part of that, as much as I would like to stand up here and say is not true, that is undeniably true. It is undeniably true that until I come to the end of myself and see the futility of my own quest for rightness and pride and weakness and my own assertions for power, I will never come to truly desire Christ, nor will I want to flee from my sin and my shame. And so, yes, there is a place where we must stand over the course of our life and say, I hate who I've become. I hate what I do. I hate my attempt to manage my sin rather than kill it. I hate the numbness and the emptiness that comes with leading myself to as the Apostle Paul looking back on the accolades of his life and declaring they were dung, filthy rags, to remember what Jeremiah said that, that above all else that the heart is wicked and desperately sick, to know the scriptures that says there is no one righteous on this earth, not one. If I am going to be blessed, happy, fortunate, living in the kingdom of God, it must first come with me being poor enough to reject my own. Why would I want to live in God's kingdom if I'm still a huge fan of my own? And so, yes, there is a hatred. A hatred that sees the depth of my ineptness and despises it. But listen, it's not the self-hatred that you want to believe it is. Because God doesn't lead us to the end of ourselves to leave us there. He leads us to the end of ourselves to see his beauty and to see his holiness. He leads us to the end of ourselves and then he doesn't treat me as I ought to. He leads me to the end of myself so that I can have my shame and my sin and my suffering and my violence absorbed in his death. And in his life, he reveals to me the true reality of who I am, an adopted son and daughter of the Most High God, to live at one that knows that they have all the riches in their Father's kingdom, to live poor in this one. And let me tell you, there's a glorious grace and happiness in knowing that I am beloved by a graceful Savior that allows me to accept my own sobering reality of who I am. And I actually find joy in my weakness and grace for my neediness. Because here's what I've learned in my life. The nearer you get to God, the more unworthy you feel about yourself. The more that I follow God, the more I've realized this, that I'm far more a part of the problem than I am the solution. I far more desire the things that are not good for me than the ones that are. I far more am capable of evil and destructive decisions than I ever want to admit or tell. I am by far more like Judas than I ever will be like Jesus. Christ reveals to me that the problem isn't out there. It never has been. It's here. It's myself. And as I realize just how broken and dependent on God I am, it leads me to great delight in realizing it's just never going to be about me. 
It's just, it's just never going to be about me. And there is such freedom in that thought to know I don't need to be right. I don't need to have that power. Look, I can look really low here. I don't need to impress you. I don't need to perform for you. Why? Because the grace of God has brought me to a place to know that I'm not sufficient enough. But I know the one who is. I know the one who is. And he's got me. And I delight to live with him. And so as I think about these things, and as I studied the Beatitudes this week, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and meek and mourning and hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are peacemaker, pure in heart. I had real issue with understanding and processing the events of this week. To watch the capital be stormed. I felt such grief because it seemed to me that so many Christians were getting swept away serving another king in another kingdom. To be a Christ follower is to be living in his kingdom. And that is only possible by poverty in spirit. We can't change the Beatitudes because we want to. We can't change the Beatitudes because we're angry. We can't change them because we're afraid of something. They are what they are. And to be poor in spirit is to be one who has stopped being ignorant of their brokenness. Who has stopped ignoring the limitations of themselves as a person. Who has stopped ignoring the failed attempt to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. The one that knows the pain that comes from trusting their own wisdom. That knows the pain of trying to manage their sin instead of killing it. The poor in spirit is the one who has come to the sobering alley of who they truly are in light of who God truly is. So why does it feel right now that if the Lord came to me today and told me that he was coming face to face tomorrow, and he told me to tell the world, and I came up here and I told you that Jesus is coming, I gave you a sign and, and you believe me? Now listen, he's, I don't know that. Why does it feel like that a great many in this country would be more excited by the possibility of the confirmation of their rightness and the destruction of those they hate? Why does it feel like, why does it feel like more would look forward to that than the awe and fear that comes with the fact that he's here? The sheer delight why are we more concerned on personal justification than we yearn for our internal, external, uh, eternal justification? And so look, it's never been the practice of this pulpit to inform you, dictate, and persuade you on who or how to vote for. That's never going to be the case, right? We serve a better king and a better kingdom. But this pulpit will be concerned when kingdom people go outside the flourishing boundaries of what it means to be God's people. And I've come increasingly concerned that 
many in this world are doing that. That many believe that sin happens in a vacuum. Sin has widespread effect on ourselves, on others, and the world. And let me just say it this way. Judas may have been the one that gave Jesus up. Judas may have been the one that betrayed our Savior. But the more that I've come to the end of myself, the more I realize I put him there. The more that I've come to the end of myself, I know that I put him there. We put him there. My sin put Christ on that cross. We may not have been there in 33 AD, but we are just as responsible for those nails. And in the same way, if I'm sinning by sowing anger and hatred and division with my language, my messaging, my living, and there is tragedy that happens around those things that I hate and those people I despise and consider to be stupid, I don't have to be there to be responsible. I have sowed the seeds of hatred that led to violence. I am responsible. A Russian novelist once wrote this, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his name, so let's just get past that. It's Alexander something. He said this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. If only there were just these people that were just so clear-cut over there that were just evil and doing Everybody agrees that's the most evil thing, that we could just remove them from ourselves and destroy them, and everything else would be utopia. Wouldn't that be a great thought? But this is how he closes the quote. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The peace that I long for and the life that I want to live will not arrive nearer a newer destination, a better group of people, or those that you despise being locked away and destroyed. Because herein lies the truth. Wherever we go, there we are. We are the enemy to our peace. The Christian is the one who's poor enough to see it. The Christian is the one who's poor enough to see that the battle of good and evil wages in my own heart and says, nothing to bring, nothing to own, nothing to say. Just the grace to know what I am not, next to the sea of the goodness and love and mercy of Christ. What makes us believe that we will be admitted into the kingdom of heaven when he returns or when we die, if we don't even want to live there now? What makes us think that something in us is going to profoundly change to make me think that I'm going to, when I get to heaven, it's going to be, if I don't even want to live there now? And so can I just end with what makes this poverty in spirit so scandalous and so glorious at the same time? You know, all of us come to various situations in our life where something is needed to be gained entrance. Whether it's a club or an employment opportunity, whether it's relationships or locations, there's things that will disqualify us from admittance to those types of ideas. Like how smart you are, 
how much money you make, how funny you are, how good you look, what you know, who you know, where you live. Those are all sorts of barriers that keep us out of things or let us into various relationships, clubs, and places. So here's what's so scandalous about what Jesus says when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It means that the only condition for my acceptance is poverty. That's the only condition. And I love how Spurgeon writes this. Charles Spurgeon, the the prince of preachers, he writes, everyone can start here. It isn't first blessed are the pure or the holy or the spiritual or the wonderful. Everyone can be poor in spirit. Not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. Isn't that great? Jesus invites us here into something that's not about possession, it's not about position, it's not about wealth, it's not about ability or power. God's kingdom isn't for the woke or the noble or the the bureaucrat or the great or the outspoken. Everyone who can be poor, all who can come to the end of themselves, all can find the indescribable joy of seeing who they truly are and coming to know the loving grace and contentment and sufficiency of being God's son and daughter. So can you imagine yourself getting there? Have you already been there? Do you know what it means to be poor in spirit? If you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're in here today and you have just not lived in his kingdom, have you ever felt the folly of trying to be right, of seeking power, of doing it my way? Have you felt the emptiness that comes from the day to day, the pain that comes with not knowing? the fear that comes with a lack of control. And as much as you despise those feelings and work to manage your life so you will never feel them again, the words of King George in the musical Hamilton remind us, you'll be back. You'll be back. And as much as it might pain you to hear this, that is the grace of our Father to bring you to a place where you can remember, I can't. And I think for us who are followers of Jesus, poverty of spirit doesn't mean that we don't pick up the things and habits of self-reliance and self-independence and sufficiency from time to time. It just means as we grow and mature, we are equally as quick to put them back down equally as quick to put them back down, constantly renewing our minds and our spirits and say to ourselves, nothing to own, nothing to bring, nothing to say, just the grace of knowing what I am not next to the sea of God's grace and goodness. And so as a follower of Jesus, we have to understand ourselves as one that is a sojourner, right? That we're just traveling through this place to a better king in a better kingdom. And I'm just going to live by that. I'm just going to put all my eggs in that basket. And in that is where I find joy and grace and peace. I want to end our time together with just uh, 
a chorus from a band called Switchfoot, which was just my college. Like, Switchfoot and my college experience was just one and the same. There's a song that's called Learning How to Die. And, And this is what he says. All along I thought I was learning how to take, how to bend and not to break, how to live, not how to cry. But really I have been learning how to die. The Christian life is not about power or rightness. It's just the joy of seeing myself as I truly am in the face of a good, benevolent king who just wants me near. Would you pray with me? Father, it doesn't register in our hearts sometimes in this rat race, just the chaos of our lives and the fear and the anxiety and the utter emptiness of our efforts. God, will you just, in your goodness, will you help us to see that? To know that we own nothing, have nothing, can give you nothing, but you have called us near. Lord, that you would just teach us to look over the course of our lives and our accolades and our efforts and just declare them dung. Not that I despise myself, Lord, but I just see the folly. And that in that, Lord, I just can enjoy the sufficiency of the one who's called me a son and daughter and learn to live by your riches and not my own. We love you, Jesus. And we're sorry that we're so unfaithful at times. Will you give us the grace to get up and walk near you again? And we pray this boldly through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.